Welcome back to Tour Today Ministries as we continue our series Tehillim Talks, a series of studies in the Psalms. And in this episode, we take a look at Psalm number 11, a brief seven verse long Psalm that seems so pertinent for the days in which we live. I'm recording this near the end of July in the year 2022. And the world is really being shaken and shows no end of stopping. And I, in my conversations with family and friends, they all express the same thing, that the, the traditions, the values, the institutions that seemed reliable and unchanging, they're all changing. It's like everything's shaking down around our ears. And, it's, uh, and the world, the people around us who don't know God, don't have a, a solid foundation under their feet, spiritually speaking are really being shaken and worried about it. Suicide rates are up, drug use is off the charts. And uh, everything from the economy, to health, to government, the world scene, and even the, the fact that people don't even seem to know what gender they are anymore, just shows the world in a, a time of madness and chaos. And again, it can get a whole lot worse before it gets better. Well, if that's how you feel, then this psalm is going to address a very important question for you, the question we're all asking. And it provides the most glorious, beautiful, perfect answer that I, I could ever imagine. It's more than I could imagine. So I hope you're blessed by this psalm because as I've delved into it over the past week, it has been such a blessing with me. And as I shared it with my wife, Robin, this morning, she... Um, she was so grateful just that this came along at this time in our life. So may it be a blessing to you. Let's get started. Psalm 11 is a Psalm of David and it begins this way. The first two verses, in Adonai I take refuge. How could you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? Or a secondary translation could be, your mountain has fled like a bird. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Now, when it says, how can you say to my soul, it does not define who you is. But we can assume that it's just the voice of anxiety. And sometimes we can be in a situation where we feel like a, a weak, defenseless little bird. And yet our enemies are armed to the teeth. They have weapons. They have malice and hatred in their hearts. And they are attacking under the cover of darkness. And we feel defenseless. And so something rises up in us and says, run away. It's just that voice of uh, the temptation to distrust God. And when things seem shaky, the enemy comes along and says, well, can't trust God. And this is why this flee to, like a bird to your mountain. It can also be translated, your mountain has fled like a bird. What is our mountain? A mountain is something solid, something unmovable, something reliable, something eternal. And yet sometimes it feels like our God has fled like a bird and we're all alone. 
but it's just a feeling, it's just an illusion. Reality has not changed. So the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. We're going to see this term, the upright. Here it's upright in heart, the yasher lev, uh, a beautiful sentiment, <clears throat> something we all desire to be. Upright means straight in heart, to be straight, to not have a crooked heart, a heart that slithers and bends and, and, and uh, collapses under the weight and strain of of current events. We want to be straight in heart. Now, I've honed in on this word for their arrow. It's the word kitzam, chet zadi mem. And uh, sometimes when I highlight a Hebrew word, I give you the word as it appears in the verse, or I give you the root of the word, because that root can take on prefixes or suffixes and sometimes a, a letter in the middle, but I just want to give you the root. In this case, I'm giving you the actual spelling of the word. Kitsam can mean their arrow or simply arrows. And this word, spelled this way, is found twice in the scriptures, both times in the Psalms. And if we look at Psalm 64.4, it will give us a, an insight, I think, into what these arrows are. Psalm 64, I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like kitsam, like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. Wicked words, the bitter words that are spoken behind our backs with the intent of harming. You know, most weapons, you need to be right there in the person's presence to attack them. But with a, an arrow, you can be far away and launch that arrow. Or you can kill from a distance. That's the power of evil speech. And we've all been at the brunt of evil speech where people in the dark, people away from us who do not have the courage to come and speak to us face to face, will talk about us behind our backs. Instead of saying to our faces what they are really thinking, they rather assassinate us from a distance using words. In God's point of view, which is always the correct one, this is one of the most wicked things a person can do. And we should never, ever be guilty of this kind of evil speech of trying to destroy people with our words at a distance. There's simply nothing worse than that. So that's the word kitsam, found two times in that form. Uh, the singular form is just chetz, ketzadi. An arrow is found many times in scripture, but this form, ketzim, kitzam, is uh, unique just to these two locations. And then in verse 3, this question is asked. This is the powerful question. This is the question I hear people asking all the time in these days in which we live. If the settled things are destroyed, what can the righteous man do? Some translations put if the foundations are destroyed, or if the columns are destroyed, if the support structure is destroyed, what can the righteous man do? What do we do? And this is a question, this is a good question that we are, are asking, a question I've asked. I want to be a righteous man. 
But what I do in the days as, like the ones in which we live now, if the settled things are destroyed, what can the righteous man do? Now, this is a very unusual word. Um, this word for settled things is the word shate. It's just two letters, shin, tov. And I want to dwell here for a little bit and look into this word, and then you can see why I've translated it settled things. Actually, I've stolen that translation from the concordant literal uh, translation, which I believe does capture the essence of this word the best. This word is found 13 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Nine of those times, it's the name Seth. Seth. Remember who Seth was? Seth was Adam and Eve's third son. Remember, they had two sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain killed his brother Abel. So God gave them another son. And you can read about this in Genesis 4.25. It says, And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Shate. For she said, God has appointed, and appointed or established or placed is a form of this word shaped. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So the word is found as a proper name, the son of Adam and Eve, shaped or Seth, uh, nine times. In fact, I believe we get our English word settled from that word set, Seth. Or shaped. Now it's translated buttocks two times. That's kind of interesting, but that's the way it is. Because when you settle, when you sit, what do you sit on? Well, there's your answer. And uh, you can find an example of where it's translated this way in 2 Samuel 10.4. Uh, a little context for this. The king of the Ammonites was a friend of David's, and he had, and the king died. And so his son, whose name was Hanun, became the king in his father's place. So David, out of the kindness of his heart, he sends um, a representative committee to the new king to express his condolences on the death of his father. But Hanun was suspicious of David's motives. So it says here, So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks and sent them away. Can you imagine how shameful they must have felt riding back with half the beard gone and their robes coming on down just to the waist and then being naked from there down? Just to shame them. Well, they paid the price for that. And then we find it translated one way as spinners. Now, what in the world is that all about? Well, you'll find that translation over in Isaiah 19. And I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. It says, The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton. Those who are the spinners of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. And the word spinners there, again, is the singular form, uh, or, or uh, the plural form of the word shate. I think it's shatot there in, in Isaiah. Some translations still will put the word columns or foundations, but the context is all wrong. It's talking about people who work for pay, people who work in textiles. So spinners would be the proper translation. But why would, would spinners be called shatot from the word shate? Well, you sit when you spin. 
Most work in the Middle East was done standing or on your knees or bending or walking or carrying, but spinners sit while they work. And so you could call them the sitters because they're spinning their, their wool and textiles. Only one place in the scriptures is this word translated pillars or foundations. And that's here in Psalm 11. But when we look at the, the use of this word shaped, I think the better, better term is it has to do with things that are settled. Things have been seated in place and have been there and at rest for a long time. Reliable things. Going back to the original name Seth, think about it for a moment. Adam and Eve, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. They love them both with all their hearts. And Cain murders his brother Abel and he's gone. So then in the verse that we read, God gives them another son. And Eve says that God's given another son because Cain killed Abel and now I have another son to replace Abel. So Seth is something that's been given to replace, to restore balance to the family. But what happens when the Seths are all gone? When the thing that was given to settle and to bring balance once again disappears. And so I really like the concordant literal translations translation of this, where it says that the settled things are destroyed. The settled things. There are other words for foundations, other words for columns. Those are not used here. It's the, the shaped, the settled things. So what do we do when things aren't sitting right? When the things that were so reliable all of our lives suddenly are not reliable anymore. When you go to the grocery store and a young mom is looking for formula for a baby and there's no formula. When did that ever happen before? Here's the answer. The answer is amazing. And the next four verses provide the answer to this question. So let's look at it carefully. Here's the answer God gives. Answer. Adonai is in his holy temple. Adonai's throne is in heaven. Where does God sit? Where is he settled? On his throne in heaven, meaning the spiritual invisible world, the eternal realm. And so the first thing that God speaks to us through David to answer this question is this. God is still on his throne. He's not worried. He's not shaken. And I often remind myself, I don't need to get worried until God does. And he doesn't get worried. He's still in control. And even though things down here may look really shaky, it looks like our mountain has flown away and we have this temptation to run away ourselves. God says, I haven't run away. I'm still here. And I'm in my holy temple. And I'm on my throne. I'm seated there. Just knowing that is, um, is such a comfort. And then it tells us his eyes see. Even though our enemies may, may be shooting at us from darkness. And maybe our enemies live on another continent. Maybe another country that's coming against us. 
and uh, they're doing things in an underhanded way. They're infiltrating our our um, our our government and our institutions, and they're attacking from the darkness. God sees. His eyelids test the children of man. What does it mean his eyelids test the children of man? I, I think this is just a Hebrew expression because when you want to look at something closely, what do you do? You squint. You, you close your eyes a bit so you can really focus in. And it's almost as if God is squinting. He's looking so closely to examine what's going on. He doesn't miss a thing. He sees it all. His eyelids test the children of man. Now, in past Psalms, we, we've learned that there are two words used for man in the Psalms that we've, we've seen quite often. One is the, the, uh, uh, the word enosh, which is used for frail man, the broken man, the man who needs cured. And then there's the word adam, like the name Adam. And uh, this is the latter. This is B'nai Adam, the children of the ones made in God's image. This is not Enosh, the broken man. These are the children of the image bearer. We are children who are trying to bear God's image as Adam was created. Adonai test, and here's the word test again. Adonai tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Now, all translations I've looked at have it rendered pretty much this way. For some reason, though, the New American Standard Version gets this wrong. And I really like the New American Standard, and how they got this wrong, I'm not quite sure. But it says, Adonai tests the righteous and the wicked. It's not what it says. In fact, the sages are pretty consistent in all agreeing that God doesn't test the wicked. He tests only the righteous. Let that sink in for a second. And they give various examples of what this means. Uh, let me just give you one of my own. Let's say um, you have a, a tray full of small rocks, pebbles and, and all kinds of rocks, and you're sorting through them, and you see one. You think, that's a diamond. Which one are you going to pick up? You're going to go right for that diamond. You're going to pick it up. It's in the rough. But then you're going to put your, your loop in and take a close look at that and examine it very closely. And then you might do some things to test it. And then if you find it worthy, then you're going to start grinding it and polishing it, cutting it, doing all kinds of things to it that, if a diamond had feelings, would probably find, uh, discover to be unpleasant. But he doesn't test the pieces of sandstone and flint and other things. He takes the precious one. It's the people who are the people of God who go through the testings. And when you go to the car lot to buy a car, you find just the one you want. That's the one you test drive, not the others. If you're looking for uh, a garment, you go to the store and you look through all of them and you find the one you think, that's the one. You try it on. You try it. You test it to make sure it's what you're looking for. We test the things we're most interested in, the things that have the most value, the other things, we don't waste our time testing. And so throughout the scriptures, we find it's the righteous who get tested. So if you're going through some testings right now, let that be an encouragement to you. 
And, uh, you know, in Hebrews, it tells us that God, he, he disciplines, he punishes the ones he loves. He scourges the sons he loves because he wants to refine and bring out the very best in them. So if God's given you a spanking, that means you're one of his kids. I don't spank the neighbor kids, I only spanked my own. And uh, if God has taken you through testing and through discipline, then praise God, you're one of his. He cares about you and he wants to bring out the very best of you and restore his image in you as a B'nai Adam, a child of Adam. So Adonai tests the righteous, but his soul, and God does have a nephesh, his soul, his mind, will, and emotions, he hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. You know, there are some people who simply love violence. They love chaos. They love causing pain. They love stirring things up. Maybe it gives them a sense of power. I don't know what kind of twisted motivations they may have, but whatever they are, God hates them. And now I might be thinking, well, wait a minute, doesn't God love the whole world? Yeah, he does. But love is not an emotion. It can have an emotion attached to it called affection. And when you really love something, you probably will have some warm emotions attached to that. But love is an action. And sometimes God can even hate, and hatred is an emotion, he can hate something that he loves. If you have kids and one of them has done something very hateful and is very rebellious, you may hate the way they act. Your emotions toward them can be emotions of hatred, but you love them. You'll do anything in the world. You'd lay down your life for them in a moment. So God can love you and dislike you at the same time. And that's something I'm sure we'll talk about again in the future. He will rain snares. Now, some translations put coals. And, you know, after all, the Psalms are poetry. And so words can have double meanings. But the word here really is snares. And you'll find this word also over in... Um, in Proverbs 22, 5, where it says, Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. The word is pachim, snares. And uh, so to translate it, coals here, just uh, it may not be the best translation. But it would make some sense when we talk about how doing good to your enemies is like keeping coals of fire on their heads. So I don't know. It's a, it's a possibility. Again, it's poetry. He will rain snares on the wicked. They always get caught up in their own traps, as we've seen in past Psalms. Fire and brimstone. Brimstone is actually an old English word that means sulfur. Uh, brimstone comes from a word brim, which means an old English word that means burning. So burning stone. Sulfur looks like a rock. It's a yellowish rock, but it can actually catch fire and burn. And uh, burning sulfur is usually something that is a product of a volcanic eruption. But when you see fire and brimstone in scripture, don't think hell. Don't jump there, even though we've probably heard fire and brimstone sermons in churches at times. Go back and think of Sodom and Gomorrah, because that's where you first find uh, fire and brimstone together. It was God's judgment coming from heaven onto wickedness. Fire and brimstone and a scorching wind. 
So if you got a fire going in dry wood, the worst thing you can have is wind. We've all read about the many wildfires out in, in the West, especially in California, because the fire gets going, but when the wind kicks up, it just keeps driving that fire and causing more and more destruction. Now, in the opening of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the products of our life and our works, now they will be tested whether they are silver, gold, and precious stones, things that do not burn, things that come up out of the depths, things are the product of pressure, and things that are worth great price, things of great value. So silver, gold, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and stubble are surface things, and all they're good for is kindling. And so we're getting the picture here of the wicked person, and the fruits of their lives are surface, things you can't really eat, and it's just uh, just stuff worth burning. And then when the burning comes, oh, what, the, what destruction there is. And they may put great value in the product of their life and in the things they produced, but only the things that can withstand fire are truly valuable in the eternal sense. So fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now, all of us are given a cup to drink. And in Jewish thought, having a cup to drink is, is a common theme. And Yeshua prayed that this cup could pass from him, this cup of suffering. And then he offered a cup earlier to his disciples, says, this is uh, my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. you know, drink all of it. This is the cup that he offers us today. And... Um, the, the rabbis will talk about all of us have a cup to drink. And then when we drink it, the effects of what we drink will then be seen in our lives. Think of the sota, the wife suspected of adultery, of unfaithfulness. And uh, you can read about it in the book of Numbers and about the, the things she must go through. And then she has to drink this cup. And... Um, if she's innocent, one thing happens, and if she's guilty, something quite different happens. And all of us have a cup to drink. I don't want to drink the cup of, of fire and sulfur and scorching wind. I want the portion of my cup to be the, the portion of life. And so... All of us are spending our lives mixing the cup that we will eventually have to drink because all of us have to eventually eat the words we've spoken and we have to absorb the actions that we've done and all the things that have been the products of our lives will then be brought back and on judgment day we come face to face with them and they're going to impact our lives for eternity. So we need to be very aware that there is a cup for each one of us to drink. What are we putting in that cup day by day in this life that we live? And then the final verse. For Adonai is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And here we have the upright again, the Yashar. The upright shall behold his face. So when you think back to the opening verse, about, you know, 
you say, you know, just fly away to your mountain, fly away like a bird, just run away because they're shooting at you. Everything's horrible. And all the things we relied on are now shaking and we just want to run. And God says, I'm on my throne. Just stand still. The advice he gave the Israelites through Moses, don't be afraid, be quiet, stand still, behold the salvation of Adonai. He said, just be still. And if you stay upright and straight in your heart, you stand upright and strong, maintain good spiritual posture, you will see my face. There's a wonderful verse I love that speaks of the upright in heart. It's in Psalm 97, verse 11. Psalm 97, 11. I love this verse. It just kind of makes me light up every time I read it. Light is sown for the righteous. Light is sown. That's treating light like seed. Light is sown for the righteous means that in the righteous soil of the righteous person's life, these seeds of light will grow into more light. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. You know, the upright in heart may go through testing and go through pain. But if we endure it, the result will be joy because joy will come in the morning. I'm going to close with this. Um, when I was preparing this uh, study, I looked at Rabbi Aidan Steinsaltz's translation of the Psalms. He was a, a genius, a Torah genius. And uh, he just passed away a couple years ago in 2020. Brilliant man, godly man. And uh, this is how he renders that question. What shall the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? He puts it this way. If the foundations, the moral and societal foundations of the world are destroyed, what can the righteous man do? When the moral foundations of society are in ruins, what good can possibly come of the individual deeds of a righteous person? And so to answer that, as you've seen in the psalm, God says, let's stretch your perspective. All these things you see in the shaking in the world, in the apparent destruction of the settled things of the world, I'm testing the righteous. That's what I'm doing. And testings produce rewards. So stand upright. I'm on my throne. I'm in control and I see it all. Stand upright and you'll experience joy because you will see my face. And all those who are causing the pain, all those who are doing the destruction, the shaking, even they are under my control. I'm sovereign even over them. And that'll all just go away. Because you understand that only the good can endure. I think that's why good things are good. By nature, they endure. They cannot be destroyed. Good works will last for eternity. But by definition, wicked things are a phantom. They're a shadow. They have no real substance. They're just the lack of light. They're a nothing. They cannot endure. And though they may provide the illusion of, of having power and of being in control and being a destroying force, in essence, all they can do is destroy themselves and collapse under their own, their own weight of nothingness. Good things last for eternity. So let's be righteous. Let's be good. God is good and he's eternal. He wants us to also be good, to bear his image, to be sons of Adam. 
and uh, to be upright in heart. So I hope this short little psalm will comfort you. I hope it, it's something you will review over and over after this teaching. And whenever that question comes to your mind, remember the answer God gives us. So when the subtle things are destroyed, what's a righteous man to do? Remember God's on his throne. He's still settled. He's in control and he sees it all. And he's going to make it all right. And the upright will see his face. What a day that's going to be. So be blessed. I wish you shalom and God bless. Over and out.